Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to our latest criminal case. In Los Angeles, Main Street, a huge old-fashioned building took over the entire thoroughfare and caught the eye of everyone who passed by. What is the name of the landmark? The Seasail Hotel. At the first glance, the building is very impressive. With 700 rooms, an endless succession of corridors, conference rooms, restaurants, stairs, elevators, windows, and doors. Yet immediately, the visitors is overcome with the strange feeling they are imprisoned and may never escape. A disturbing infinity room with no exist instills the fear of being trapped in the middle of all the outdated furniture, compelling visitors to do a complete U-turn. The building's history includes report of vicious murders, suicides, scores settled, dark revenge, doors that squeak, black water running from faucets and corpses hidden under the floor. But what was the real curse that plagued Cell Hotel and its residents? That's exactly what we are here to find out in today's criminal case. By looking for the Cell Hotel Los Angeles in any search engine for online accommodation, sites like Booking.com, TripAdvisor, and EasyVoyage.com show up, and any person instantly knows what to expect. The mixed reviews, mostly negative, can be found alongside alarming questions from future customers who already regret their choice and would do almost anything to cancel their reservations and look somewhere else. But while Booking.com gives it a generous two stars, TripAdvisor says it all with a ranking of one. Visitors browsing the hotel's gallery section are treated to a selection of images where each one is more stunningly attractive than the last. For example, there is a large Art Deco-style hall with marble floors, an utterly charming vintage gold elevator, as well as carefully groomed palm trees to remind us that we really are in California. It's like a dream. In the visitors' photo section, there are still some ordinary-looking rooms, some of which are a bit old-fashioned and outdated with their gold wallpaper and their decorative lampshades, but at least they are clean. In terms of the room tariff, it varies between $50 and $60 a night, depending on whether or not you want a private bathroom or use a common one in the hall. If you're ready to spend a bit more, you can stay in one of the many suites for just under $100 a night. Yet, there are always negative reviews. It's strange, although there are some exceptions. If you want to stay at a fun and colorful hotel in a thriving neighborhood with great restaurants and high-end shops, then stay at one of the 700 rooms at the Seasell Hotel and save some money. Big American-style breakfast with waffles, fried eggs, and freshly squeezed orange juice. Well, at least, the reviews are not all that bleak. But soon the avalanche of creepy comments come back in full force. 
small rooms filled with bugs, chance of running into someone in the halls who is either on drugs or really drunk. Elevators are filthy and covered in graffiti, the linens are dirty and so are the carpets. There is a strong smell of urine coming in from the bathroom and the clientele is very weird. I made a reservation here but ended up cancelling it and looking somewhere else. Just skip it, there's better and cheaper in LA. At night, don't go wandering around the neighborhood, you might come across some shady characters. There are pages and pages all with the same refrain. However, following its purchase, in 2008, significant renovations have taken place. One of the hotel's directors, Fred Cordova, has gone a great lengths to try and please everyone and to attract a large, young, modern clientele not just from the United States but from all across the globe. In his opinion, the typical profile of a new client would be someone who is respectably middle class who wants to stay in the downtown of the City of Angels without spending a fortune on accommodation. However, guests who step out to walk around the Skid Row district surrounding the hotel are immediately horrified and overwhelmed by the spectacle on display. A string of hastily set up tents, shopping carts full of junk, empty bottles and beer cans, but mainly there are piles of used syringes tossed all over the place and sometimes they're even collected so they can be reused. It's like a genuine American leper colony. Aside from the makeshift cams, there are the emaciated young, not-so-young, black, white, indigenous, ageless faces, tattooed arms, protruding veins covered in needle marks, men and women ravaged by distress, countless addictions with a fixed hollow stare that has been devoid of hope for many years. This is where all of life's casualties end up, everything that the flashy LA would prefer to forget or at least hide. There is a whole population of homeless people who over time have become undesirable, parasitical, and disruptive. From atop the Seasell Hotel's roof, it's possible to have a panoramic view of this human tide with over 10,000 people, a number that keeps increasing year after year. Skid Row has become the meeting place for every kind of low-rent dealer who proliferates there. Fights and police raids occur both at night and during the day on a daily basis. An African-American man in his 50s who owns a small Cajun cafe on the other side of the street recalled the suicide. That's what everyone around here calls the Seasell Hotel and I'll tell you, it would be better to spend the night outside rather than in one of their rooms. There is something not right going on over there. Not right at all. The suicide? Why such a sinister nickname? He continued. It's because there's been a death every two to three months back in the day. By searching for Seasell Hotel victims on Google, the first image that pops up is that of a beautiful young woman, one of the delicate natural beauties from the 1940s, when makeup was still very expensive, extremely pale, high cheekbones, a mane of black hair, a cat-like stare, and then a name, a very proper young girl's name, Elizabeth Short. Little is known of her except that she had an uneventful and unhappy love life, a dream of stardom that was quickly abandoned, and a career in films that never really started. But instead of Elizabeth Short, history bestowed her with another name, the Black Delilah, and now some of you listeners are probably already saying to yourself, oh yeah, I've heard about her before, but I can't remember exactly where or... And of course, they would be right. In pop culture, the Black Talia refers to something more abstract than a mere young, lovesick girl from Boston in search of recognition like Miss Shorts. Did she acquire the nickname because of her following, black hair, her diaphanous complexion and her almond-shaped eyes that remind us of the exotic flower in question, or does the name have some coded meaning? And what does Seasell Hotel have to do with any of this? To find out more, let's go back to 1942 
when Elizabeth was packing her bags to leave home and try to make it big in California and its palm trees. Elizabeth Short was born in Boston in 1924 and was the second of five girls. Cleo Short was a real estate entrepreneur. The family lived a somewhat comfortable life and their daughters seemed to be headed for a bright future. However, the Wall Street crash of 1929 put an end to all those hopes. The Shorts broke up and then divorced. Chloe, unable to provide for the needs of his children, decided to take a boat trip, during which he staged a suicide by diving into the lake and allowing people to believe that he had drowned. Now without resources, the mother worked here and there to feed her family, who was facing an alarming financial crisis that had affected a vast majority of American homes. Ever since she had been a little girl, Elizabeth had dreamt of going into the movies, becoming a star and living in a villa in Los Angeles, away from the stress of daily living. Her almost exotic good looks were an important asset for her success and she knew it. When she came of age, she packed her bags and headed for Vallejo, California. She made through the rounds of beauty pageants and even won the title of Miss California in 1944, while she still worked as a cashier and a waitress to make ends meet. Yet despite all that, her dreams were slow to come true. Every day, Elizabeth scoured the classified to find an agent. Although she did go on one or two auditions, she was never cast. Talent scouts wanted box and blondes because they represented the new standard of beauty in Hollywood. No one wanted small, slim girls with dark and dramatic features like Elizabeth. Depressed from constantly being rejected, she decided to take a break and leave California to settle in Florida. At that time, her father, whom everyone believed was dead, not only resurfaced but also managed to rebuild the fortune that he had lost by working as a contractor in a shipyard and bought himself a charming house in Fort Lauderdale, where Elizabeth went to live. In Florida, the young woman found a certain amount of stability and her atypical looks started getting noticed for the first time. Sailors and soldiers from the U.S. military returned home looking for some entertainment to forget the traumas of war. In the dance halls, Lizzie caused a furor. Many people even thought that she was half Chinese or Japanese. Aware of her tremendous power of seduction, she collected many lovers but still hoped to find her soulmate one day. A man who could love her for who she was and who could protect her from life's ups and downs. It was during one of these dances that she met Lieutenant Gordon, a dashing U.S. Air Force pilot. The romantic young girl fell hopelessly in love and the romance seemed like it could last as Gordon promised to introduce her to his parents upon his return from the war in the Pacific. But the lieutenant died tragically when he was shot down aboard his plane, leaving Elizabeth in the grips of the most painful heartache she had ever known. Against her father's advice, she decided to go back to California to try and retrieve her chances at Warner Brothers, even if it meant dyeing her hair and transforming her physically in order to please the producers. She wanted to live her dream, star in the movies and become rich. It's important to note that this period was a tough time for actresses. The movie business in America was primarily a man's domain. It was openly sexist and was not for the faint-hearted. Those who were fortunate enough to have been cast in a part, no matter how small, had to deal with the whims and demands of the big screen's most powerful moguls. Behind the glitz and the glamour, there was a darker, more sadistic world where the competition and a frantic chase for money and glory reigned supreme. Actresses never got the same kind of recognition as their male counterparts who disdained them and treated them like prostitutes when they were off the set. Furthermore, there were certain doctors on hand who had been hired to concoct shots which were really powerful cocktails made of antidepressants and amphetamines so that actresses could stay on their feet for hours for filming without having to take breaks to rest. 
Elizabeth was vulnerable and got caught up in the system just like dozens of other future starlets when they were starting out. After being sexually harassed by a director, she decided to leave the deceitful and fake world of Hollywood once and for all. This would be the start of her descent into hell. She was arrested once by the Vice Squad when she was drunk at a bar in Santa Monica. She met a man named Jake Anderson and subsequently became his girlfriend. The young man who was known to the police proved to be a very bad influence on her. The couple was penniless and Jake was unable to hold a steady job because of his alcoholism. Elizabeth tried to compensate for their lack of income as best as she could by working here and there. Jake Anderson was extremely jealous and suspicious and he often hit her. In 1947, the couple, whose relationship was alternatingly loving and litigious, moved into one of the rooms rented by the week at the Seasell Hotel in downtown LA. In the meantime, Elizabeth had suffered a miscarriage and was very weak. She spent her days in bed, smoking cigarettes after cigarettes, while Jake earned the household income through petty larceny and trafficking. The modest rented room that had become their home cashed with faded luxury of the rest of the hotel. Speaking of the Seasell Hotel, which is the backdrop for the story, it was built in 1944 in the pure Beaux-Arts style with its columns, volutes, moldings and imposing marble columns reminiscent of ancient Greek temples. Its construction and development cost $1.5 million, but the owners at the time expected to earn a huge profit from it. Besides, at the time, the Cicel Hotel only took in the upper crust businessmen, movie stars, foreign ambassadors, and crowned head of states. With its 700 rooms and suites, gigantic marble hall, crystal chandeliers, countless elevators, bay windows, palm tree dining rooms, and its massive ballroom, it was the home to the exuberance and excess of its wealthy clientele. Just like the Alexandria and the Roslyn Hotel, the Cecil organized sumptuous parties that attracted Los Angeles' upper crust every weekend. But the glory days did not last for long, because less than two years after it opened to the public, the hotel fell out of favor during the Great Depression of 1929, which reduced it to nothing. As famine and bankruptcy swept the country, the wealthy fled the downtown area, and the parties and other galas became nothing more than a fond, distant memory. Struggling to stay in business, the owners of the Cicel had no other choice but to do what other establishments like them were doing. They turned the hotel into a kind of cheap hostel where rooms could be rented by the day, week or month for a small fee. Limeward Park, which had joined the hotel, also became home to many victims of the economic crisis. With the number growing every month, as the population increased, so did the spread of diseases like tuberculosis and cholera. The resulting squats and the squalors gave the place its reputation for being a part of red light district and dangerous part of the town, which stood in stark contrast to its earlier reputation. In the 1940s, the Cecil Hotel fell into even further despair due to a lack of funding. The bed linens had not been changed in years and there were problems with leaks in every floor of the building. Then there was also the matter of a very diverse clientele from all backgrounds who were now staying there. The moth-eaten carpets in the hallway have revealed the reality of domestic life. Chamber pots, garbage bags, ashtrays overflowing with butts, empty bottles, clothes lines where undergarments hung to dry, women running around in nightgowns with curlers, and unshaven shirtless men. Only the bar and a few ad buildings remained to provide a semblance of the past luxury, and a few old employees still served cosmopolitans in their red uniforms. Upon her return from shopping one morning, Elizabeth was accosted by one of the hotel staff members who gave her a business card with her name, Morty Ishmilevitz, talent agent. 
She was practically jumping up and down with excitement. A manager came all this way to meet her. He said that he would come back that evening and would be waiting for you at the bar at 9 p.m. He's counting on you to be there. What if this was her last chance? What if it was the key to her dream that she had for so long, but she had so painfully given up? She only had one presentable dress and a small tube of lipstick. Jake could lend her $10 to go to the hairdresser. Oh, but she had no stockings, no garter belt, and no shoes. She climbed atop a stool and took a $20 from a strong box that her boyfriend had in habit of hiding on top of the wardrobe. Now that she felt a bit more confident, she headed straight for the hairdresser, had a shampooing and her nails painted red, and bought herself a pair of tights before going home to get ready. When she was all decked out, she couldn't sit still and be constantly looking at herself in the entrance hallway mirror. She walked back and forth mimicking the proud strut of the former Miss California that she had once been. She eventually sat down on one of the couches in the old smoking lounge. She left a short note for Jake Anderson on the bed. Darling, I'm going to meet a big wig from Warner Brothers tonight. He asked me to meet him at the bar to sign a contract. I'm crossing my fingers because this might be the end of all our troubles. I love you. Yours, Lizzie. At 9 p.m., Lizzie had already been sitting at the bar for half an hour when she saw a small man arrive wearing a suit that was much too big for him. As he removed his hat to give it to one of the waiters, she noticed that he was wearing a very shiny black hairpiece that almost fell on his bald forehead. For just a second, she felt like laughing. The little man approached her with his hands outstretched. The Black Dahlia. I beg your pardon? You're the Black Dahlia. No, I'm Liz. Don't tell me your name. I'll never be able to remember it. He got comfortable on one of the seats, ordered a vodka lemon, and searched for his lighter without even taking another look at the doubtful young woman. However, she remained confident because she knew all about Hollywood managers and their lecherous ways. But in this case, he was the one to solicit her and not the other way around. Still, she expected a bit of consideration. What are you drinking, sweetheart? The little man in the teepee finally asked. Um, a tea. A tea? Shmilevitz coughed. Honey, if you want to work in the movies, you're going to have to learn to get drunk right away. Hey, waiter, that same thing for the little lady. Elizabeth, who hadn't had a drink in months, hesitated to take a sip. Stand up. Let me have a look at you. Oh, what beautiful black hair. Is that your natural color? Hmm, the hairdresser overdid it a bit with his hairspray. But no problem. Turn around, honey. Oh, what a pretty face. Such cheekbones. The porcelain complexion. Those eyes. My God, those eyes. You wouldn't be Jewish by any chance. You remind me of my mother when she was young. Um, no, I'm Catholic. Morty gave her a disapproving look by comically rolling his eyes. The evening went on and Elizabeth Shorts still didn't know if the character sitting in front of her was really a talent scout as he claimed to be or rather just a joker who wanted to play a prank on her. Don't worry, honey, I'll make you a star so big that even Hun Marlin Dietrich will be green with envy. Let's drink to that. Waiter, champagne, and I'll put it on your tab. No, I'm just kidding, of course, it's on the house. He gave the young woman a wink as he patted her on the knee. Elizabeth smiled, somewhat intoxicated by the alcohol that started going to her head, as well as a tempting promise that Mr. Morty had made about making her a star. She immediately imagined herself with Jake arriving at the Beverly Hills Hotel, giving the keys of their Cadillac to a valet with her dressed in fur coat and him in a tuxedo. As he offered an arm to climb the stairs, how handsome he looked. What a beautiful evening. 
The next day, January 15, 1947, a resident from the neighborhood was out for a stroll with her baby when she noticed a strange shape that had been thrown on the ground. It looked like a store window mannequin as its complexion was so pale. As she drew closer, she let out a horrific scream. At her feet was the nude body of a woman who had been mutilated and cut into two with disturbing accuracy as if it had been planned in advance. When the police arrived at the scene several hours later, they made a disturbing discovery. The victim's lips and eyes had been slashed, her blood drained, her teeth pulled out, and her mouth had been filled with feces. It was horror in its purest form. The dismembered corpse was identified as Elizabeth Shorts, who had disappeared the previous evening when she was having a drink at the bar at the Seasell Hotel in the company of a little man in an oversized suit. The staff who neglected to take down the strange man's information gave a detailed description to the police. The case would come to be known as the Black Dahlia. Several individuals were suspected of the murder, especially Jake Anderson, the man who lived with Elizabeth was briefly arrested and then released. George Hodel, a wealthy Hollywood surgeon whose wishes reputation precedes him, was also blamed by his own son for being the one who ordered the Black Talia's murder. But no charge was ever made against him, and he was not even interviewed by the police on the subject. The murder was also attributed to the Cleveland Torso Murderer, also known as the Butcher of Cleveland, an unidentified serial killer who had already killed 13 people. He too had the habit of dismembering the torso and draining the blood of his victims. However, he was never found or arrested. That was how the tragic story of the Black Dahlia came to an end with all the dreams of glory that the simple girl had hiding behind this fatal pseudonym. Who killed her? The answer was never found since the case was dismissed by the San Diego police two years later. As for the agent, Morty, he disappeared without a trace, never to be found again. During the latter half of the 1960s, at the height of the hippie revolution and the struggle against racial segregation, the Cecil Hotel became a refuge for itinerants from all over the United States who wanted to flee an overly conservative home environment. Young people at the time advocated sexual freedom, freedom of religion, and freedom of their bodies. The poor and hungry of the Great Depression gave way to the voluntary poor who were revolting against the ideas held by their elders. It was the heyday of all kinds of drug use. At the Seasale Hotel, dealers now waited for their clients in the reception area when they didn't simply go to their rooms. It was also an era when the first suicide in the establishment occurred. In 1962, Julia Moore, a young hippie originally from San Francisco, jumped out of her room on the 8th floor. Two months later, another resident, Pauline Otten, also jumped out of a window and accidentally killed a passerby in the process an Italian-American named George Giannini. Two years later in 1964, Pigeon Goldie Osgood, a former desk clerk at the Seasale Hotel, known in Skid Row as the Bird Lady, was found dead in her room, stabbed and sexually assaulted. Her murder was never being solved, even though the police had arrested and then released a man named Jack Ellinger, a derelict who was quartered in the Pershing Square when the desk clerk went to feed the pigeons. Between 1984 and 1985, the famous serial killer Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, had a room on the top floor of the Seasell Hotel for $14 a night without anyone ever knowing or even suspecting who he really was. He was eventually caught and then arrested in August 1985 for 10 homicides. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1991, another serial killer from Austria, this time Johann Jake Unterweger, stayed at the Seasell Hotel. During his stay, nine prostitutes who were also renting rooms at the hotel mysteriously disappeared. Unterweger was later found to be guilty of all the nine murders. He was later extradited to Austria and eventually committed suicide in his cell on the evening before his verdict. With several murders and suicides within its walls, the hotel slowly started to gain the reputation of being vicious and even downright dangerous for traveling tourists who soon began to look elsewhere for accommodations. At the end of the 1990s, the hotel was only a shadow of its former self. The flashiness of the past had now almost become grotesque in bad taste and D reflected the building's dramatic degradation. It had become the haven for dealers and drug traffickers of all kinds who rented rooms for their customers to shoot up in privacy. Additionally, another segment of the hotel's clientele was the so-called permanent residents who had already lived there for more than 20 years simply because they had nowhere else to go. These veterans were part of the decor who disappeared during the day to go panhandling in the subway before returning at night with some provisions. Some even collected social security checks, which were just enough to be able to buy something to eat and pay the rent about $400. It's either this or sleeping under the bridge, said Bert Jenkins, one of the Seasail Hotel's former residents who had been living there ever since his wife kicked him out of their Santa Monica home. Yet despite their seniority, they knew well they also risked being kicked out one day, especially after the new owners purchased the hotel. They wanted to do some major house cleaning and get rid of these long-term residents, most of who have been there since the 1970s and 80s. In all, there were about 100 people who lived there permanently. Mostly they were a life of castaways who came from different backgrounds but were dealing with either costly medical expenses, a divorce, a job loss, or addiction which forced them to spend their old age in an unsanitary room with toilets that were often clogged. In 2011, the Seasail Hotel was given the nickname of Stay of Maine, as if a name change would be enough to make everyone forget its lackluster history. On the internet, a lot of information was beginning to circulate concerning the Seasail Hotel's past, especially on Reddit.com and other blogs that focused on unexplained phenomena. Some people wanted to spend the night there simply for a chance to see the ghost of one of the hotel's suicide victims. Yes, many people began describing the place as haunted and having a lot of paranormal activity. On the social networking platforms Tumblr.com, which specializes in blogging and is an interface like Facebook, a young girl asked the virtual community a question. Dear friends, I'll soon be leaving for Los Angeles. Can anyone recommend a nice but cheap place to spend the night? Elisa Lam spent hours on Tumblr, so much that it was almost like a friend. She used to post everything including photos of her trip, film clips, recipes, daily jokes, and even a personal journal that any curious person could read. Elisa Lam was Canadian. Her real name was Lam Ho Yi. She was 21 and the daughter of a couple originally from Hong Kong, who had moved to Vancouver in the 1980s. Although she was enrolled at the University of British Columbia, Elsa had trouble keeping up in school primarily because she was bipolar, which made it difficult for her to concentrate. She had only taken three courses over the three years for her studies. 
However, Elisa had been described as being a nice, cheerful girl, but her shyness was always an impediment to many things in her life. She dreamt of being in a relationship but was unable to find a boyfriend, which upset her greatly. She got into the habit of pouring out her frustrations and heartache on Tumblr on a daily basis, no doubt reassured by the anonymity of being online. Perhaps she also sought to have her contacts reaffirm her beliefs or maybe even offer some good advice and comfort. Besides social media, Elisa had another major passion, traveling. She had been planning for a road trip to the west coast of the United States. Despite her parents' continuous attempts to change her mind, Elisa still held on to fulfilling her dream. Every evening she scoured travel websites and forums, compared prizes, sent emails to travel agencies, requested codes and received immediate responses. In just a few months, the trip had become the biggest obsession in her life and she even gave it a nickname, My Whirlwind Adventure. While in Tumblr, Elisa planned her itinerary in California. She would visit San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, and eventually San Luis Obispo with short or long breaks in between on whether she wanted to spend more time in one place or another. On Sunday, January 27, 2013, she arrived on a shuttle bus from San Diego and to her delight discovered that winters in California seemed a lot like summers in Canada. It was 15 degrees Celsius in the shade. People walked around in t-shirts and bathing suits under a warm, pleasant sun. The young girl could barely contain her excitement. As for her accommodations, she already had made her choice. She planned to stay in a small room at the Cicel Hotel on Main Street on the city's south side. Long before she arrived in the United States, Elisa had made a reservation for four nights at the famous hotel largely based on photos found online on travel sites. She found the rooms to be fairly basic but still acceptable. However, it was still the Art Deco halls shining with a thousand lights that eventually won her over. On the evening she arrived, she updated her status on Facebook. Hooray! I'm on a vacation! The weather is amazing! I arrived at the Cicel Hotel, which was built in 1924 in the Art Deco style. So, yeah, it's a classy place, but since it's in Los Angeles, it hasn't aged well. For the first two days of her stay, Elisa had to share a room on the fifth floor before eventually being relocated to a single one on the evening before her third day. On Sunday, January 31, 2013, which was her last day in Los Angeles, Elisa had planned to go on a shopping spree. Late in the afternoon, she crossed Main Street to go to a bookstore to buy some books and CDs as gifts before she returned to Vancouver. She had a quick chat with the bookstore staff who found her very nice, extra-worded and friendly like most Canadian tourists. At 6.30, loaded with packages, Elisa went back to the hotel to have dinner and relax. She walked through the great, legendary hole to get back to her room. It was the last time that she would be seen alive. A week later, officers from the Los Angeles Police Department were contacted by a Canadian couple who were concerned that they had not heard from their daughter. She usually called her parents every day, but since February 1, there was complete silence. The police went public and organized a press conference requesting assistance from the city's residents in order to shed some light on the mysterious disappearance of the 21-year-old Canadian girl. A recent photo of a smiling Elisa was posted almost all over Los Angeles, accompanied with her physical description. 1.5 meters tall, brown hair, Asian, wearing glasses and weighing about 50 kilos. Despite the presence of Elisa's parents and frequent pleas for the public's help, the investigation reached a dead end. On February 13, 2013, 
which was almost 12 days after the young girl's disappearance, the LA Police Department discovered a strange and disturbing video that had been circulating on the internet for some time. The chilling video was recorded by one of the surveillance cameras in a Cecil Hotel's elevators. Moreover, it was the final and only recording where a young Canadian girl appeared in flesh. She reportedly got into the elevator shortly after midnight on January 31, 2013. At first, she was seen calmly entering the elevator alone. Up until that point, everything was normal, and while the video had no sound, the visuals more than made up for it. Dressed in a red sweater and a black shirt, Elisa, who usually never takes off her glasses, was not wearing them on that particular evening. Her attitude visibly changed. She became disturbed by something, then turned around and smiled vaguely. She was then leaning forward and examining the elevator buttons before pressing one. But the doors didn't seem to respond and remained wide open. Elisa peeped out the elevator, looked to the left and right of the hallway. Things started to become increasingly strange. She could be seen running into the elevator, backing away and hiding behind the sign, while still casting a frightened look as if she were hiding from someone or something. At one point, the video showed her carefully stepping out of the elevator, standing for a moment before hesitantly walking down the hallway with her gaze fixed on something invisible in front of her. She froze and retreated back into the elevator before stepping out once more to gesture with her right hand. She went back a minute later, completely shaken up, and began punching the elevator buttons frantically, but she was still unable to get the door closed. This is where things truly begin to get mysterious. Once again, Elisa went down to the hallway, but this time she started to frantically wave her arms in the direction of someone whom we never see in the video. Incidentally, her movements were difficult to interpret. She was calling for help, trying to communicate with someone for help, or was she simply begging the person to leave and not come any closer? We will never know the answer. During the last few seconds of the video, Elisa fell out of the video's range and never returned. The doors to the elevator remained wide open and suddenly closed shut. They continued to open and close frantically on their own before eventually remaining opened. Creepy. Over the next few days, the elevator video generated millions of views and close to 40,000 comments during the first week of it being posted on the web. Everyone had their own opinion and their own theory as to what would have happened. Many suspected that Elisa was under the influence of drugs and that perhaps she was even trying to attract a man. Others maintained that given her bipolar condition, she may have been hallucinating. Still, others advanced the theory that she was being threatened with a gun by an unidentified person who is just beyond the visual field. Paranormal enthusiasts interpreted the event as a case of demonic possession that there was an evil presence in the creepy corridors of the Cecil Hotel. Despite the intense media coverage of the video, which instantly went viral on the web, it did nothing at all to help advance the investigation. Five days later, the staff at the Cecil Hotel began to get overwhelmed with complaints from several residents who were inconvenienced by the weak water pressure that made an attempt to take a shower impossible. All the residents confirmed that the water had a blackish color, while the occupant of room 236 described the water from the bathroom tap having a strange taste. Like many similar establishments in the state of California, the Cecil Hotel used a hydraulic supply system through water tanks installed in its roof in order to compensate for running water shortages. Furthermore, Los Angeles was known for periodic water shutdowns during major heat waves. On the roof of Cecil Hotel, there were four tanks of which contained about 3,800 liters of water that was ready to pick up the slack should they ever be required. On February 19, 2013, one of the hotel desk clerks finally called the plumber to check out the water pressure problem that everyone has been complaining about. 
when the plumber went to install the electric battery inside the hatch of the fourth tank, they discovered a nude body floating in the water. Two days later, the corpse was eventually identified as Elisa Lem. Since the tank's hatch was too narrow to allow the investigators to get inside, they were required to remove the whole upper portion in order to retrieve Elisa's body as well as some personal belongings including her passport, her medication, her glasses and her discarded wallet which was also inside. The autopsy revealed no signs of violence or external trauma and consequently the police decided to revisit the theory of this being a homicide. During the course of the investigation, other details began to emerge, each one more bizarre than the previous. According to the employees at the hotel, it was simply impossible for someone to get on the roof if they did not have the keys. Besides, an alarm system would have been triggered in the event of a problem. But nothing like that happened on the night of January 31. There was also the matter of explaining how the murderer could have carried Elisa's body three meters up the ladder, performing the difficult task of opening the tank's hatch and then finally throwing the body into the water. It was completely inconceivable. As for the suicide hypothesis, it too would prove to be implausible simply because Elisa would not have been capable of completing all of the steps that were mentioned previously. There was absolutely no way that she could have known how to manipulate such enormous hatch in the middle of the night without her glasses and without setting off the alarm. But which was the fact and which was a fiction among all this? On Reddit, the online community, amateur sleuths tried their best to get to the bottom of this mystery. In March 2013, a member was able to determine the dosage of the medication that Elisa had taken on the day of her death and which would have explained the strange demeanor she exhibited throughout the elevator video. According to this user, Elisa would have been taking at least three different kinds of medication. In this case, some very powerful antidepressants or even some morphine-based psychotropic drugs. Perhaps she might have had a mix of all three and did not exercise any caution with respect to the order in which they have been taken. In the interim, witnesses who had far remained silent began to come forth. In particular, Amy Price, the hotel's assistant director who provided some distressing information. Upon her arrival, Elisa had been sharing a double room with two other people on the fifth floor. But their complaints prompted the desk clerk to get her to move Elisa into another room because essentially her former roommates went on to explain that the young Canadian girl had displayed some strange and pathological behavior and that she frightened them at times. Since then, Amy Price has withdrawn her testimony out of respect for the young woman. The video of the elevator, which has generated close to 12 million views, has also been modified over time. On YouTube, for example, there are more than a dozen recordings of the original, some of which are in HD in an attempt to enhance the quality of the video and to possibly make other potential details more visible. Even today, the sequence continues to raise a lot of questions, and all users have their own theory, but none of them have been able to come up with a definitive answer. Despite the massive media coverage that it has received internationally, the case of Elisa Lam remains unsolved. The Seasail Hotel, or as it's often called, the Stay in Maine, is still standing. It has been closed since 2017 for renovations and subsequently purchased for the modest sum of $30 million. Of the hotel's 14 floors, close to 8 of them have been completely refurbished. Fred Cordoa, the current director, hopes to restore the reputation of this vestige in old downtown LA, even if it means offering services like guided tours of the historical district that was home to many film studios like Warner Brothers and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The director also claims to be quite optimistic about the future of the establishment. Although it was intentionally scheduled for October 2021, the hotel's reopening to the public has been postponed to an unspecified date due to delays in renovations.
Recently, in January 2021, Netflix broadcasted a documentary film about Elisa Lam's disappearance entitled Crime Scene, The Vanishing at Cecil Hotel. Season 5 of the TV series American Horror Story also devoted an episode to her simply called Hotel. Anyone who would like to see the footage of the video from the elevator can do so for free on YouTube as well as on other sites. The whole video lasts more than four minutes and viewers' discretion is advised. More than just a building, the Cecil Hotel has over time become a character unto itself in American pop culture. For many people, it is still one of the most haunted hotels in the United States. For others, it's simply a victim of its own reputation and the vagaries of time. What about you? Dear listeners, would you ever spend the night there if you were given the chance? We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.